From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and as always, I get letters from you all. And good Lord, lately, so many of you seem to want to know about one thing. And so we're going to do that one thing. If I combine everything that makes me tick in putting one of these shows together, then it's usually going to be one part what you all want to know and one part what I just like. And the result this week is going to be the story of tea. The sound T, or as you all might understandably think of it, the letter T, although as always, letters are just chicken scratches. I mean, what we speak are sounds. That's one of my lessons that I probably push too much. But really, letters to sounds, to digress just a bit, letters to sounds are like written musical notes to this. how the names of the letters are like some kind of confetti compared to how Aretha sounds them or like how she sings it is so much more than just calling off the names of the letters. It's a shaky but useful analogy. Imagine, for example, you're trying to play respect on the piano and notice how that just wouldn't be useful. It's more than the notes. It's more than the letters. It's about sounds. It's about the sound. Yes, I did do the story of P not long ago, but don't worry, I'm not going to do the whole alphabet as we go on, because frankly, you know, the story of, say, H would not be very engaging. But T, goodness, you all are hungry about this. And so I'm going to do my job and hopefully please my sponsors. We're going to have a little bit of the Flintstones in French and God knows what else. What is it about the T? Well, first of all, we're going to address this question that for some reason has been coming in heaps and piles lately. We're going to talk about how T is often rendered in English as a glottal stop. And so many of you are asking me, why lately? And yes, the lately, of course, gets my antennas up, but we'll talk about that. Why lately are people saying cotton instead of cotton? Why lately am I hearing people say button instead of button? Manhattan instead of Manhattan. What is that? And, you know, I I know where that question is coming from because we don't write it that way. We don't have any way of writing a glottal stop in English in any real way that everybody knows. And you see what's on the page and it is cotton. It is button. It is Manhattan. And so what's this? What's this? This grunting. And, you know, we often have different senses of how we talk then, frankly, we do. I am hardly immune. I had no idea until doing this show or maybe a little before that I say war instead of were. I've told people I don't say that. Then I hear myself actually doing it when very occasionally I listen to one of these shows. But in the same way, I remember once I had um, it was one of those parties and somebody sat on my lap and we started talking about language and she said well i say cotton not cotton and i said no you don't you say cotton and she said i say cotton and i said no you don't and then she got up and went away but what i want to show you is that first of all saying cotton and button and the like it isn't new it goes way back and we can hear it for example Let's go back to a precious recording 
made in 1931. This is of a comedy team, Olson and Johnson. This is Ole Olson and Chick Johnson. They were most active in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And you know, they are a beautiful example of how humor changes. It is very hard to get any sense of what made these guys medium-sized but long-lived celebrities in their time. To an extent, you kind of had to be there to see what they did. But the truth is, we do have a precious recording of people speaking, them doing one of their routines in 1931, and it's in very clear sound. And so we are listening to these guys doing their bit 87 years ago. I'm not playing these guys because they're entertaining by modern standards at all, but let's listen to them talking because frankly, they're all we've got. So Olson and Johnson saying some stuff and listen for certain words such as uncertain and written. Here we go. And tell me also, what's the most uncertain thing in the world? The most uncertain thing in the world? (laughs) A woman's mind and a grapefruit squirt. (laughs) Well, you're right. Fifty million Frenchmen can't be wrong. But why? Why did you break your date with that pretty school teacher? Oh, when I came late, she wanted me to bring a written excuse from my mother. Well, that girl I saw you meet last night was certainly an old scarecrow. Now, see, those are just, you know, some American schmoes, and they're just talking, and they're saying uncertain, not uncertain. They're saying written, just like I certainly do, not written. And that's way back in 1931. We can go further back. So, this is an interview done sometime in the 1960s with an ancient, by then ancient, vaudevillian. Blossom Seely. She was born in 1891. So we're listening to a woman somewhere past 70 talking in the 1960s. She would have learned to talk in the 1890s. She would have learned to talk in the gay 90s. And yet, listen to how she says the word important, not important, but important. And then listen to her interviewer a few beats later. There were things to learn. The press was very important. You're meeting with your with your representative. Well, representative in those early days came here in New York. This was the aim, to get to New York. Today they're all going out to California again. But I had to uh, work in it to be able to get to New York. And my first show was a show called The Henpecks, a Broadway show. And that was it. But energy, is that important too? Pardon? Strong, a lot of energy. Oh, yes, terrific energy. I had, yes. So you see, this goes way, way, way back. What it is, is it's a rule. It's something that we do without thinking that is a beautiful demonstration that the letters are only the beginning and that really it's sounds and how they interact with each other. And so, for example, before a syllable like n, when you've got the accent on the first syllable, there's a rule that the t changes into an uh. And so, not cotton, but if it's cotton and you've got the accent on the front, ca, and then you've got this un as your second syllable, then it's not cotton. You change it to cotton, of course, you know, below the level of consciousness. If you've got something like button, you don't say button. You change the T to an uh on the way to actually saying it. So on a certain level, it's button, but by the time you push it out of your mouth and it's going to somebody's ear, it is 
button. That's a rule. This is the kind of thing that linguists call phonology. And often we'll say, well, we study sounds. And it's easy to think, well, you know, why would that be interesting? You might study the acoustics of the sound, but what do you mean that sounds pattern? Well, what we mean is that, for example, in the same way as you know that you don't say leafs, you say leaves. So leaf, leaves, roof, roofs, for many of you, hoof, hooves, you know, to change that F into a V. Or if you didn't, you know now. And that's just something that you learn as a speaker of English. In the same way, not button, button. And people have been doing it a long, long time. So that is the answer to the business about the T becoming a glottal stop. It's one of those things that makes us sophisticated. It's part of how language is complicated. Now, you know, Blossom Seely, all we got to hear was her you know, late in her life saying, frankly, not very interesting things. But just as a little little palate cleanser, let's listen to her in 1925. This is Blossom Seely singing, Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. Listen to this cut, and my goodness gracious, listen to the two pianos in the background just twinkling away. Nobody knows who these people were, but goodness, they can play the hell out of their instruments. Listen to this. Isn't that great? Doesn't really relate to anything, but one should just know. Blossom Seely, yes, sir, that's my baby. That is 1925. In any case, good old T. And just like when I did P, I also talked about the Uranus rendition. With tea, I can't go through this without talking about the etymology of tea, i.e. that stuff we drink. Odd stuff, if you think about it. How was that invented? You know, somebody says, well, we're going to take these leaves and we're going to burn them or let them sit in the sun or something. Then we're going to put it in a cup and we're going to put hot water over it and we're going to drink it and call it fun. Like you assume that it starts with medicine. It's probably people thought that would cure a cold. And then they realized that it tasted kind of good. But why that? Very interesting. But in any case, tea, you know, it goes back to an ancient Chinese word that would have been roughly da. That's what it would have been way off in some forest somewhere in China about 5,000 years ago. And two things happen to da. One of them is that you have a D and D and T are really the same thing. And so you have something like a T and then you've got that palatalization we've been talking about. If you've got a T sitting there, one way that it might rust is that the T is going to become a Ch, T, Ch, Ch, Ch. So just like you have trees becoming trees, well, imagine if you've got something called ta, you're drinking your cup of ta because you're having a bowel problem or something. Well, as time goes by, your great, 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 great granddaughter might be pronouncing it cha. And there are many of you who will know that that is the word for it today in Chinese and in places thereabouts. I like that word, thereabouts. Places thereabouts. And so, you know, this chai that everybody likes so much, that's that same root. So there are many languages where tea is what happened when da became cha. And you get all sorts of words kind of like that. Now, on the other hand, suppose you've got a word like da 
And, you know, D and T are really the same thing. And so suppose it's just going to be like ta. Okay, but then the vowel. If a vowel is just sitting there, you know, after a while, something is going to happen to it. It's going to start moving. And so, for example, think of our word made as in made, you know, made in China. The spelling shows that it used to be made. Okay. Well, the ah went to ah went to a. And so that's why it's pronounced made. Well, same thing. You know, what's happening in England? What's happening in China? All human beings have sounds that tend to do the same sorts of things. You just never know which pathway the sounds are going to take. And so you have something like ta. And then you have this ah. And after a while, ta and te. And so you have te. In, for example, the Fujianese version of Chinese, instead of going to cha, you got te. That goes from that region to Malay. And the Dutch are in that region and trading and you know, getting on people's nerves and doing that thing called colonization. And they take the word te from Malay. And next thing you know, you've got te all over Europe where people start drinking it and enjoying it. So you've got te. Now, we don't pronounce it that way. We pronounce it T. But then this is that grand old vowel shifting as always. And so think about how feed is spelled. And notice how sane people, if they started spelling it that way, would have been pronouncing it fade. And then meat was mate. Peas were pays and so on. And so a big vowel shift in English in, you know, word after word after word is that a becomes e. And so if you're drinking tay at a certain point, well, after a while, that became drinking tea. And that is why we say tea. So there's cha and there's tea. Both of them are from a word that sounded roughly like da. I don't know why that's the ancient Chinese voice, but one must have an ancient Chinese voice and it's going to be kind of hollow like that. So da. That's where the word for tea came from. Those of you who've been listening a while probably have a sense of my pacing. And so you know what I want to do right now. But you know what? I got twice last week, actually, which is just fine. People saying that they like the show, but, you know, they could do without the musical clips. And you know what? I'm going to keep playing them. But I do respect your preferences. And so just this time, I'm not going to play Chrysanthemum Tea from Sondheim's Pacific Overtures. I am not going to play a song about people drinking tea. So right now, you may savor me not playing a song about tea. Here it goes. And there it went. Catchy, wasn't it? That's a little bit of John Cage in Lexicon Valley. Let's talk about stray tea. Tea tends to kind of get stuck between teeth, and it creates all sorts of neat little thingies. And so, for example, here is, sorry, I have to play a clip, but you got your little bit of silence, folks. This is Bobby Short. And he was a very precious cabaret singer. And it's funny, the older I get, the less I like Bobby Short, actually. I have every single recording of his, and I don't know, I'm getting cynical or something. He is very precious, but he did teach me a lot of songs. I did, actually, just by chance, I met Bobby Short once, and I told him I had all of his recordings, and I could tell he didn't believe me. It was very interesting. But this is him singing a Noel Coward song called A Room with a View. This is actually how I learned of this British thing. So just listen to this lyric and listen to what happens with the word other. We'll 
Phoebus talk will bring this, that, and other thing to our room with a view. This, that, and t'other thing, too. What's t'other? Now, you might think that it's a cute way of saying the other, but then you kind of wonder, why isn't it t'other? You know, why did the th become a t? And stranger things have happened. But what that actually is, is what happened when people said that other enough that the tha dropped off and just left the t up at the front. And so you have t'other, instead of that other. And so this, that, and t'other thing. So only the T is left. It's like the Cheshire cat only leaves the smile. There's that T just sitting there. This, that, and t'other thing. It's very interesting. And so you have that little bit of stuff. And get this, this is what happens to it. In many parts of England, you can hear today people, and it's not only on on t'other, if you're going to talk about the man, then you'd say, oh, I sought man. I sought man. Like that. And if you notice, I'm not saying I sought man. I'm saying I sought man. I'm doing a glottal stop. And so the t becomes a glottal stop again. And then there's some places where it just disappears altogether. I saw man. There's just nothing. That is something that happens in British English, which in so many ways is always more interesting than our English because it's been there longer. And so there are more different kinds. Stray tea, little things that happen to tea. Another example of stray tea. Often. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of you like to say often instead of often. And that is a perfectly valid fashion choice. But it's stray. And this is why you say, well, the T is in there, so you should pronounce it. Okay. Have you, have you whistled lately? I whistle. Have you whistled? For example, here is a wonderful song that has never gotten around enough. This is from Green Willow, which is a musical. And you'll, you won't be able to believe this when you hear this song. This is the person who wrote Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Then he writes Green Willow, which is this weird, strange, eldritch little musical that kind of tastes like Lysol, pine cones, and tea, basically. This is a musical about a guy who just can't stay put. And he comes into a village and then he leaves just because he's driven to leave. And to give you a sense of what this guy is like, he was played by Anthony Perkins actually at the same time that he was doing that weirdo in Psycho. So imagine that weirdo in Psycho having kind of a romance. Imagine sleeping with him. That is what this woman is singing about. Here it goes. Wandering man is a wandering man. 
Isn't that neat? But she doesn't sing walking away whistling. Or, you know, wouldn't you like to live in a castle? I'd rather live in a castle. Or do you listen to people? Because I listen to them. And of course, there are all sorts of reasons why often seems different. I know. For example, you might say, well, you have to pronounce the T in often because oft is really a word by itself. True, but is it? How would you use the word oft? Like, I mean, if you like reading Wadsworth and Longfellow, okay. But do you really use the word? Oh, I do that quite oft. I've never heard anyone say it. It's not something I would say. Oft isn't really a word. It's something that's in dictionaries and in frilly poetry. Or, for example, let's soften our tone. Well, soft is a word, but you don't soften things. And so there are stray T's that kind of hang around because many people still will just rather say often, but it's stray. The language technically let it go, and yet it still just kind of sits there and it kind of decorates the language. There's stray T's in French. French is a a romance language spoken in France. (laughs) It's just to let you know. And there are stray T's. So, for example, one of the first phrases that you learn, comment allez-vous? Now, if you've had Spanish instead of French, comment is how, allez is go, vous is you. So, how go you? But it's not pronounced comment allez-vous. You have to say comment allez-vous, like that. For example, you know, Waldo Lidecker, the pretentious aging man in the wonderful film Lara. Here they are in a party scene. I've always wished I was at this party and listen to him speaking his French. Hello, Waldo. <laughs> Darling, how are you? I've met Shelby. Unavoidably. He was awfully nice to me in Louisville at the Derby. His family's from Kentucky. Sharecroppers, no doubt. Comment allez-vous? Did you hear him say that? You know, when I was in my teens and 20s, people thought I was Waldo Lidecker. And you heard that little clip, and just from the name Waldo Lidecker, you can imagine what kind of person he was. And when I was in my teens, all the way up until I was about 28, when some things happened, people thought I was Waldo Lidecker. Then I spent my 30s and 40s being thought of as a normal person. But now that I'm a little past 50, I can tell that people are beginning to think I'm Waldo Lidecker again. I am not. Now, maybe Addison DeWitt. They called me Mr. DeWitt. That I could do. Do you realize how completely you belong to me? I could do that. But I am not Waldo Lidecker. So, comment allez-vous? that, and you have that little t that's stuck in there. It was originally at the end of the word. Now you only use it when there's a vowel following. Okay? Or something like, well, where is it? Or where is he? Où est-il? The e is the is, and really the word is e. It's not it. But if you have it followed by a vowel, then that t ends up being in there. Où est-il? And you just kind of have to know. But it's not always about something that's really there in any sense at all. You can have a T that just makes no sense in terms of anything that you would see even in the spelling. And so, for example, how many does he have? Combien? How many? A. Has. Il. He. So, combien a il? Now, anybody who knows even two weeks of French knows that combien a-il sounds like somebody fell down the steps. It's combien a-t-il. You have to stick that T in there. Well, it's not in the spelling. What's Where'd that T come from? That's from Latin. That's from French from 400 million years ago, where the third person singular was at. So, 
For example, if it's he sings, she sings, or it sings in Latin, well, then it's going to be cantat. So you have the T. Well, that's long gone from French, except when you say something like combien a-t-il. You have to stick that in there. Now, given that that T really doesn't belong, I mean, that T should be kicked gently in the butt. It doesn't belong in there. In any French that takes it easier and gets rid of the mess like a Creole, you don't have that stray T kind of gunking things up. That shouldn't be there. Imagine if you're a kid and you're learning French and you hear things like où est-il and combien a-t-il. Well, in your little brain, you're going to start thinking, well, this little t thing has something to do with questions. Something about when you ask a question, you have this little t. And you're not thinking about writing. You're not thinking about income taxes or rejection or anything like that. You're trying to learn how to talk. And so you have this t. So you're kind of thinking that something like t is the way you ask a question. And you know, in real French, like French that's allowed to evolve past what's on the page, that actually has happened. It's something that you find in, for example, Canadian French. And boy, can it throw you. For example, let's say that you want to ask, you're in Montreal and you're going to buy some poutine or something. And you want to say, well, is it expensive? C'est cher. Now, c'est is the, it is. Cher is expensive. You know, once, just by chance, I happened to sit across from Cher. And you know what was interesting? She's not tall. You would assume that Cher is like seven feet tall, given just her posture and the roles that she plays. She's really quite small. Just by chance, I once met Jane Fonda. And Jane Fonda is like, she could sleep in a shoebox. She's this tiny little person. In any case, so, say Cher. That is a question you could ask. C'est cher. But another way you could ask it is, c'est tu cher? Now, tu is you, usually. That's true in French and Spanish. But if you say, c'est tu cher, you're not asking somebody whether they're expensive. That would be, et tu cher. C'est tu cher means, is it expensive? And the tu is just marking it as a question. It's the weirdest thing about Canadian French if you're not expecting it. And it's because of things like où est-il, combien a-t-il. After a while, you start thinking that the T is the way you ask a question. And in Canadian French, it is. I once had a, frankly, I hope she's not listening to this, but an unheedful French teacher who gave us this French-Canadian novel. We were, we were we were 16 years old and, you know, we can't really read yet. And she just gives us this thing. And, you know, the novel is absolutely amazing. It's by Michelle Tremblay. It's called The Fat Lady Next Door is Pregnant. And I remember trying to get through it and, frankly, just couldn't because she didn't teach us that Canadian French is different. She just somehow thought we would inhale it. And, you know, I've got the book right here in front of me, and I want to give you a sense of how exotic this was. It's really in front of me. I'm flipping through it right now. So here it is. It's all yellow, and I couldn't get through it. I had no idea what was going on, and I wasn't alone. None of us read this book. I remember having whole conversations about these characters having never gotten past page 12. But here is page 12. And it's this scene. It's about these women who are on a porch. There's this cat, this weird cat, Duplessis. So the tiger-colored cat that had spent the night under the porch, worn out after three days of violent lovemaking and fasting. That's pretty good, I imagine. If you translated this, I don't know if anybody has, it's kind of like after three days of fasting and fuck, you can imagine. But anyway, of violent lovemaking and fasting, woke up and 
was spitting angrily and had walked off cursing this feverish propriety. Okay, that's what the English is. And then one of the women says, the cat this morning, was it Marie Sylvia's cat? Then somebody else says, yes. Now the French is for the cat this morning. Was it Marie Sylvia's cat? It's le chat, the cat, a matin, in the morning. C'était-tu le chat de Marie Sylvia? Well, I thought that it was, are you Marie Sylvia's cat? And at first I thought, well, is this going to be some sort of fantasy novel like a proto-beloved? Because, of course, I knew that Beloved was going to exist before it was written. But no, it wasn't about the women being a cat. Nobody could explain this to me. There was no internet. And after a couple more times of that, I just had to give up. It's an interrogative marker. And you can hear it because I don't think many of you are going to end up reading The Fat Lady Next Door is Pregnant. Listen to it in the Flintstones. When Pebbles is born, is it a girl or a boy? Have you seen the baby? The, the nurse is, is bringing it in. Well, well is, it, is it a boy or a girl? Yeah, well, but what is it? Now, listen to how it goes in Canadian French. As-tu vu le bébé? Uh, la garde l'amène tout de suite, là. Of course, he's not asking, are you a girl or a boy? Presumably, we can be quite sure that he knows, given the circumstances. It's that little interrogative marker. When I first saw this episode, that confused me, and I had to play it over and over. And come to think of it, I somebody had to tell me, because I just didn't understand. So that's how these things go. Some of you are thinking that it sounds like Fred is saying, c'était. But for one thing, to go a little bit into the French weeds, why would he be saying, was it a girl or a boy? A little funereal about your baby, right? And in fact, c'est-tu often comes out as c'était, because listen to these ancient French-Canadian ladies singing a song. The song is called c'est-tu de ma faute, and that means, is it my fault? Am I guilty? C'est de ma faute, c'est je l'ai bassu, quel bon débarras, j'en aurais pas eu. Stray T, to the point that you have tu, meaning question mark, in some kinds of French. You never know what's going to happen to T. I hope that I've given you some sense of how the crazy linguist views something like the letter slash sound T. And in general, I'm always telling you that we're looking for patterns. We want to not just collect butterflies, but we want to see our predictions borne out. You might almost predict that there would be some kind of French where something like T would be a question marker. And it actually is. Well, in the same way, you know, the backshift. I'm sure this is a completely unfamiliar topic, but the backshift. So, for example, if you are watching an old episode of December Bride from 1954, listen to the device that the very charming Matt and Ruth are exclaiming about in their living room on this show that was cranked out by the same people who did I Love Lucy. In fact, I think it was the stage next door. Listen to them. Oh, Matt, isn't this fun? You think we'll be able to get it to work? Honey, when we pay $300 for a tape recorder, it better work. Maybe we should have gotten a $100 model. Ruth, that one was made for people who don't have much to say. Isn't that cute? They have a tape recorder. Not a tape recorder, a tape recorder, because it's a brand new thing. And no, it's not just them or the actors making a mistake, because a few minutes later, listen to Verna Felton, who will be familiar to a lot of you as the voice of the fairy godmother in Cinderella. And she says it, too. Oh, what 
tape recorder. Matt just bought it. Oh, somebody left it running. He must have been so excited he forgot. Come on, Lily. Hmm? Let's leave our voices to haunt posterity. So, backshift. Well, if that's the way it goes, then as some of you often write me, there's some cases where you would expect a backshift and it doesn't happen. And so, for example, with pie, you talk about a meat pie. You don't talk about, I'm going to have a meat pie. Presumably somebody said that for about 10 minutes a long time ago, but once it becomes a thing, it's a meat pie or a pizza pie. Or I remember once somebody was talking about tasty cakes. You know, those of you who are from Philadelphia and thereabouts will remember the wonderfully nasty tasty cakes. I still like to grab them up today. They did, I don't know if they still do, but they did have a magnificently nasty peach pie. And I remember once a woman saying when I was about 10, and they came up and they gave me one of them gooey peach pies. And I thought she was <laughs> Southern. And I thought, yeah, peach pie, not peach pie. So why don't people say apple pie? Why is it apple pie? People should say apple pie. Now, of course, wouldn't you know, I'm watching me some Batman with my girls, and I heard Shelley Winters say this, playing Ma Parker, as they put it. Here she goes. Batman and Robin are climbing up the side of the house. Who are they now, Ma? Boy, that was some meal, Ma. Well, they reached the window. Hey, Ma, what's for dessert? Apple pie. Apple pie. There you go. So somebody does say that. I mean, she's dead, but you know she couldn't be alone. And it makes sense that you'd say apple pie. And she's not distinguishing it. That character doesn't have a bunch of fruit pies. And she's saying, well, apple pie as opposed to blackberry pie. It's apple pie. She's saying it right. Another thing about system. As soon as Shelley Winters said this. Stop the horse play, you two. I knew instantly where she was born. I thought, huh. Shelley Winters was from St. Louis. How did I know? Because she says horse play instead of horse play. Now, those of you who are from St. Louis and thereabouts, <laughs> I like this word, and thereabouts, know the joke about farty for 40. And of course, it's not just that word. It's carn for corn, organize for organize. You can hear Phyllis Smith doing it on The Office, and that's because she's from St. Louis. And that really marks somebody being from there very, very, very often. It's dying out with the newest generation. But if somebody who was the age of Shelley Winters at the time that episode was filmed, which I think is 1967, says horse play, you know, right there, Missouri. She's from St. Louis. And then you look it up on Wikipedia and there it was. So why don't more people call it apple pie? I, I don't know. But I do know something about H. There is something that's kind of cute about H. Why is it H? Why do you say it that way? So, you know, F, G, and L, M. Shouldn't it be something like hey or, or ha? Why is it H? Where does that come from? It's actually the neatest thing. Let's say that you've got Latin alphabet. And let's say that you tend to leave vowels out of your alphabet because you don't think of them as important, which was common in how people thought of alphabets way, way, way back in the day. And so let's say that you're reciting and you're going to have what we think of as H, and then you're going to follow it not with I, because that's a vowel, not with J, because for a long time, J was thought of as just a variation on I. You're going to go from H to K to L. So in Latin, that would go ha, ka, L. In Latin, 
And in the languages that came from it, K was often thought of as not really a letter because K was taken care of by C, which really was the same sound. So if you already had C taking care of your kunis, then K is just, well, what's, what's that? So if you're reciting, then you're going ha, ka, l. There was a sense that you often had deep in your brainstem that it was really haka, l. Because ka wasn't a real letter, and so you're just reciting, and you figure, well, one of the letters happens to have two syllables. So people thought of it as haka, l, m, and so on. Well, haka then gets thrown into the churn. I mean, it's kind of this Upton Sinclair process where somebody's finger becomes sausage. Well, haka becomes part of the churn. What's going to happen to something like haka? Well, for one thing, that h is going to fall off. So you've got aka. Then if you've got a k, palatalization is always threatening a consonant. So just like t becomes ch, so can a k. And so you have acha. Okay. And so then that vowel at the end is going to fall off because it's vulnerable. And so you're going to have ach. And then the great vowel shift happens and ah, so just like ma de, ma de, made. Well, then you're going to have ah, h. That's why H is called H. So, yes, we are going to have a song about tea. But with all due respect to Sondheim, it's not going to be chrysanthemum tea. It's going to be tea for two. This is Art Tatum, the astonishing pianist playing tea for two in 1933. The man is playing by ear. And frankly, this man always makes a pianist wish never to sit down again. Remember that dormitory pianist that everybody was in love with because he could play yesterday or something like that? He wasn't as good as Art Tatum. Just listen to this man's 800 fingers. makes me so happy that's 1933 not the 50s version listen listen to that goodness you can reach us at lexicon valley at slate.com that's lexicon valley at slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out don't not go to slate.com slash lexicon valley that's sort of a double negative there yes we listen to the news even down here in the valley the show was edited as always by mike volo and i'm john mcquarter Thank you.